This is the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, presented by eCity Interactive. eCity creates websites, marketing campaigns, and magic for higher ed institutions, large and small. Every digital challenge has a solution. eCity's talented team of problem solvers will help you find yours. And now, here's your host, Stephen App. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. I am your host once again, Stephen App. Really cool show today. We're, we're going international, and we're, we're going way international. We're going all the way to the other side of the globe to talk to my favorite and probably your favorite higher education marketer from the land down under, Justin Lang, Senior Manager of Strategic Marketing and Communications at the University of Queensland and Australia. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. No worries. Thanks very much for having me. And um, that's a phenomenal introduction. I might have to get you to, to be my chair for any future conference presentations. <laughs> I'm, I'm also available for hire for voicemails. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's work something out, out at the end of the, uh, end of the call. Well, hey, you know, you and I met in July when you when you traveled all the way to San Diego for EDU Web uh, 2018, and you actually won Best of Track for content marketing at that conference for for a presentation that you gave about something that I think is really cool. What you're doing at the University of Queensland, and that is uh, creating ten pieces of content from one hour with a researcher on campus, and so. I really wanted, you know, we could go in a million different directions here, but but that was the aspect of your presentation that, that I just thought was was really cool. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could just explain to, to me and to our listeners, you know, what is that content that you're creating from, from one hour with a researcher? Sure, no worries. Well, the premise behind it really is, so we work with a lot of medical researchers in the part of the university I'm in, um, but there's no difference really to any other kind of academic discipline that they're incredibly time poor. They're always applying for new funding or they're busy in the lab or whatever it might be. So we were having real trouble uh, getting time for them to share their expertise in, in ways we can share with our audiences. So battling with that, we really came out with the idea that if they're going to book us in for an hour or so, let's make the most of that time. And, and rather than just filming a video or having a chat about a media release, let's let's get more bang for our buck and 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 get as much out of that time as we can. Um, we physically can't get around to all of our researchers in person. So when we do, we need to make the most of that time. Uh, and the pitch to the researchers, because they're, they're not always up for it or they're not always understanding the value of, of getting involved with the, with the local marketing team, is that if they give us an hour of their, their time, um, we'll give them 10, 10 pieces of content. Uh, we record an initial chat with them. So, I mean... In the past, before we were doing this, we'd need to go out and meet people to have a chat about their latest uh, research that's been published, and that would be the form of a conversation that would usually lead to to a media release. But we're now recording that initial conversation. Um, we can repurpose that into a podcast or audio file that we embed onto our blogs. Um, once we've kind of established a bit of rapport, we'll start. We'll turn the camera on and we'll record those answers and. Uh, capture some overlay footage at the end of the chat and it's then chopped up into a, a long form video as well as a, a short social version. Um, we'll use the transcripts and repurpose that into a blog piece or a Q&A column and 
get a few photographs of them. Um, something that I, I still can't get my head around is the amount of researchers that are world-class and um, very successful academics that don't have profile pictures, or if they do, they're 10 to 15 years old. So um, that's often the, the little hook that gets them over the line is we'll come over and, uh, and get a new profile picture for your lab page. Um, and something where we started earlier this year was really um, showcasing the facilities that some of these researchers are working in. So uh, we'll set up a 360-degree camera in, in some of their research facilities and, and hit play. Um, and that's something that's been quite well received as well. Man, so, so if you're counting from home, that is uh, one professional headshot, one blog post, one podcast, uh, I guess I'll say a few Instagram posts, uh, including some behind the scenes, maybe for like an Instagram story, and then two videos or three videos. So you've got one that's long form, one that is shorter for social, and then one that's 360 degrees. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And then how, when you say long form, Justin, you know, what is long form video? How long is that? Uh, it really depends. Uh, most of the time it's two or three minutes. We still do have to chop out a lot of uh, a lot of the interview ends up on the editing floor, but um, it can be as long as five or six minutes depending on how engaging the person is or, or how complex their topic is uh, because we're not always relying on a new piece of research to be published to use this 10 pieces in an hour kind of concept. So uh, we'll often go out to someone and talk to them about something that's topical or uh, you know current news and affairs. So... An example recently was um, it was out of America, actually. There was a new antibiotic they thought they'd found in some dirt somewhere in the United States, and we got one of our uh, superbug researchers to give a few thoughts on that. So we, you know, we went through this process and and we produced a four or five minute long video for him, and then we chopped it up into a sixty second version for social. And he actually had an unbranded version that he used on his own Twitter account, which um, which went quite well as well. Um, and he's very appreciative of it, which is often a big win for us as the in-house marketing team trying to build those relationships and kind of create evangelists, I guess, within the organization that are going to go and tell their colleagues, hey, you work with the marketing team and they'll do some great things for you. Yeah, I mean, the idea behind what you're doing, of course, is is this concept of content repurposing. You know, I'm curious, can you talk to me a little bit about how you came up with the idea generally? Yeah, sure. It started two or three years ago. Um, I went to Content Marketing World in Cleveland. I think it was 2016, maybe 2015. Uh, and I I read about a guy that won an award there uh, for content repurposing. And he worked, I wish I knew his name because I'd love to give him a shout out. Uh, he worked at a small research institute somewhere in the United States. And he was a one-man team. And he was having these same problems that particularly being under-resourced, being a, a solo operator in a research institute. But he was having the same battles. People wouldn't, weren't able to meet with him. And if they were, it was too quick. And, you know, he might see one person each year and 12 months between is not, a, not long enough to, to go out and keep talking to them. So he had the similar concept. And then about 18 months ago, I was at a conference here in Australia where uh, an Australian sports marketer, his name was Matt Henry. He works for the National Rugby League, which I guess is like, uh, the Australian version of the NFL, and he spoke about how he produces 20 pieces of content during a one-hour interview, um, which I was really blown away by. Uh, and he showed us some of that content uh, using an example of uh, a TV interview from an event. So the event was running for an hour. 
um, and they chop that up into 20 pieces. Now, we probably don't have quite the same resources available to us as the National Rugby League. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately. Not yet. But, um, you know, to be honest, I thought 10 would be a good number and, and going through the 20 pieces of content he had, um, I kind of cherry-picked a few of those items and thought, yep, that's something I think is realistic. Uh, so, Justin, you mentioned, right, there's one individual at content marketing world and this other Australian sports marketer with a lot of resources at the National Rugby League. Where do you fit in at the University of Queensland? I imagine you're not a one-man show, but but what does your team look like? Sure. So, my team looks after what we call reputation, recruitment, and retention in the, in the medical part of the university. Uh, so, across the full life cycle of a student. So from recruitment through to current student activities down to alumni and, and then they're kind of passed on to our advancement team, you know, a few years later. Uh, but yeah, definitely we're not a one-man band, but we're also not resourced to the same level of the National Rugby League. I guess before we had this process, our two comm staff were probably the main uh, contact points for researchers and it was a very traditional approach as far as I've just been published in a in a research publication. I need to let the world know. I'll pick up the phone and I'll, I'll call my media contact. And, for, you know, for years that had been the approach that the media manager would then go out and have a chat. They'd put together a media release, publish it, kind of hope for the best, and, and it would be done and dusted. Um, we've moved away from that model now uh, to we probably have three or four members of the team that can go out and capture that content. Um, and there's been a little bit of trial and error and in-house training as far as the questions you need to ask to really get to the bottom, to the crux of what their research is about. Um, and it, it has been a bit of a journey to get there. So it was pretty resource intensive for the first few months as far as our media manager would go out there with a videographer. Um, and during that learning phase, there might be a third person there kind of keeping an eye on things and understanding how we pull the content gems, I guess, out of the researchers' minds. Um, but we've now got to a position where not only the media managers going out and, and having those chats, um, we've got our marketing managers or our videographer, we'll even send him out on his own to have a chat to them to get to the crux of what we're really trying to share with the public. Justin, is there an added importance in that you're you're working with researchers in particular? You know, I, I, So I previously worked at a law school and I always felt like it was a little bit harder to book time with faculty than an alumni than it was to, to book time with administrators, staff, or, or even students. Is that the case for you? And is, and is there an added importance to making the most of your time with them because it is hard to get time with them? 100%, yeah. Compared to um, leaders, so we have, not to the extent of getting 10 pieces of content, but we've, we're producing a lot of video and uh, more blog-type content for some of our leadership, sharing with internal comms, but it's much easier to get access to them and, and time in the room with an executive dean, for example. So totally agree. It's very hard to get that time with the researchers. Um, so that that's kind of what this whole premise is founded on, that if we're going to have that time with them, if they're going to give us time, let's make the most of it. Um, and something that has been really useful and I think is worth sharing is that the worst thing we can ever do in these situations is is rock up to a researcher's office or lab unprepared. Um, it's they, they find that quite offensive when you get there and you spend the first 40 minutes asking really basic questions to understand what they're about, whereas we make a real effort to, to learn about them and their research and our prep work before we go out and have that chat. So we hit the ground running and, and make the, the most of that 60 minutes. 
real quick about the the actual pieces of content that you mentioned, you know, how did you actually come up with what those pieces of content would be in, in terms of how you were going to repurpose uh, your time with a researcher? And, you know, I mean, has that always been the same? We're going to get, you know, one headshot, one blog post, three videos, you know, has or has the has the content you're repurposing changed over time? Yeah, it's a bit of a tricky question. It's definitely changed over time. Um, before I learned about uh, what the National Rugby League were doing and, and based on me trying to emulate what that American marketer had been doing, we were kind of doing bits and pieces, but never the 10 at once. So uh, we had moved beyond just having a, an interview of a researcher to produce a media release. And we had started, um, you know, the media manager would start recording a few clips on her iPhone or she'd record the interview and um, was slowly upskilling and chopping that up into a podcast that she could share with the media release. Uh, but it was only really after um, probably about 12 to 18 months ago where I really got my head around formalizing the process and, and getting the team on board with the idea of 10's the magic number. Um, but it's probably also worth mentioning that tends the dream result. We don't always go out there. So sometimes based on the researcher's personality or, uh, you know, an hour turning into 20 minutes because they've got a conference call that they're running late for or whatever it might be, it, it doesn't always get 10. Um, I would say most of the time we get five to seven pieces of content. Um, and, and, you know, 10 out of 10 might be 25% of the time. So, um, didn't want to, I guess, pull the wool over anyone's eyes that we're going out and creating <laughs> 10 pieces of content every time because, uh, yeah, we're not that good. Hey, everyone. The Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast is part of Connect EDU, a podcast network bringing together brilliant minds in the higher ed space and breaking down silos. You can check it out at connectedu.network where you can find great shows no matter where you work on campus, as well as resources for first-time and long-time podcasters. You can also follow along on Twitter at connectedupod and hashtag connectedu. So Justin, you just mentioned right formalizing the process and I think that's really important to dig into here because there are definitely going to be people listening to the show who who say, yeah, that is a dream scenario. I also want to produce 10 pieces of content with for all my interviews. But I think the devil is always in the details. So can you take me through the process for, for how you're actually repurposing this content? And I actually think maybe the best place to start is how you're approaching maybe those early conversations with a researcher. I mean, how early in the process... Are you actually collaborating with a researcher on the themes and the ideas for for what you're trying to get out of your time together? Sure. It's kind of, uh, I've got two answers for you. So the proactive stuff that we have in our calendar, you know, months in advance, uh, an example is research week. So over here we have research week in September each year. We'll probably give ourselves a four or five month lead time on who our research heroes are going to be that we'll share content about during that week. Um, so that's that's the dream. We get a really long lead time. We'll have meetings before. Um, we'll do team brainstorming on the concepts and the places we're going to film outside of the lab and that sort of thing. But that's you know that might be two campaigns a year because the reality is most of our research promotion is reactive based on new work that they found in the lab because that's what our audiences want to hear about is the latest breakthroughs. So it's probably worth talking about those situations and. 
the most notice we'll get for something like that might be three or four weeks. Um, that's the, the point of time when a researcher gets the email or the phone call saying, congratulations, we'd like to publish your research in our journal. So from there, they're supposed to contact their, the, my team and, and have a chat and basically say, wow, I've just been published and I, it's under embargo for the next four weeks, but can you work with me to do something? And that's when we'll jump on it and say, sure, send us the abstract, uh, let us get our head around the research, and then we'll be in touch. So we'll spend a couple of days trying to understand quite complex language around medical research or biomedical science or whatever it might be. Um, and then we'll organize a call or if we're on campus at the same time, we'll go over and have a coffee or have a chat with them in their office um, and really make sure that we fully understand what this latest research is about and how they got there, you know, the implications of what it has for the public. Uh, we'll ask them. And I think we're in a real, really luxurious position that working in the medical field, our content really we're able to hit that emotive side of the content quite easily and, and how we do that is through um, including patients in our stories where we can. Um, but yeah, I do acknowledge that not everyone has that luxury. Um, but, yeah, so those early conversations really three or four weeks out, um, we'll talk about where we're going to film. We'll make sure we fully understand their research and the journey they've got to get there, the impact for the community um, and other people that we can get involved, whether it's collaborators or patients or hospital colleagues or whoever it might be that's really going to um, add greater value to the story that we're telling. I love that you I, – I picked up on a little bit of a, a laugh at yourself as you said that they'll be proactive in getting getting in touch with your office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I had to bite my tongue a little bit because, I mean, more often than not, it's, it's a problem we have that we, we might get, you know, even a week's notice is fantastic. Um, but more often than not, it's a couple of days. Um, but – that's even, you know, we, I talk to my team about that's why we need to be so good and on the ball that when they come to us and they're, they're trying to do the right thing, let's really, you know, hit a home run here and, and produce them some awesome content so that they become our advocates within the organization and they tell their peers, hey, you know, if you've got a media release, let them know early. They did this for me. Check out my video. It's got, you know, it's got 10,000 views. And we've got um, a small number of really great, academics who have had some good results that has actually led to um, philanthropic conversations. So, I mean, that's what really hits home for the researchers if they can get more funding for their work. Uh, so that's something we roll out. And we're, I mean, as a content marketer, it's quite funny that we, we start creating content about our content success to attract more <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah. So, so we really share those stories of success for the researchers, what it means to them that work with us. And we, you know, it might actually lead to funding or extra collaboration with colleagues, you know, across the globe. Justin, when you're having those early conversations with researchers, how much are you involving them or allowing them to contribute to to the logistics of of the piece you're going to create together, whether that is um, where you're going to film or, um, you know, whether patients are involved or, or can be involved and, and what aspects of research to talk about and how much is your team just kind of driving the bus and, and bringing researchers along for the ride? Yeah, I would say it's somewhere in the middle. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, legal legal mumbo jumbo around what we can and can't do with patients particularly when there's any clinical trials involved so we have to be really careful um about giving people false hope in the community because as soon as you start talking about clinical trials or, or breakthroughs in a particular uh illness or disease it's 
it's becoming extremely personal for people out there. So we rely on the researchers to, to guide us in what can and can't be said. Um, so we definitely don't, I guess, drive the bus in, in that side of things. But where we do really take the lead is as far as the line, line of questioning, um, getting them to talk in more lay terms rather than the usual complicated scientific talk that they'd be used to talking with their colleagues. Um, and we also like to get them out of the lab because it's their comfort zone, it's their security blanket, I guess, is putting their lab coat on and, and standing with colleagues around all this fancy equipment. But, um, <laughs> I mean, when you're producing a lot of content about from a similar field, it gets boring really quickly if all your videos have researchers in white lab coats swirling test tubes of, of blue or pink water, which is what you see <laughs> everywhere. Justin, do you do you always know what your first or you know or core piece of content is going to be? Because logistically, I would think you know it's it's always going to be easiest to start from video or audio. But I'm curious if there are times where that just doesn't work out for you for for a variety of reasons, and and you might go straight to a text-based blog post or or just releasing headshots and, and Instagram posts. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is not all research is conducive to visuals. Um, some of it's, I, we talk in the medical field about around the translational pipeline. So that ranges from really basic science in a lab that might lead to a discovery that will affect patients in you know 10 or 15 years, right through to the clinical end where they're working with patients already. So often it's quite hard to, at different stages along that pipeline, it's quite hard to find video footage that's actually going to uh, be interesting to people. Um, but at the same time, when people come to us with uh, wanting our support to talk about something that's 20, you know, 15 or 20 years away from hitting patients, we, we want them to engage with us in the future. So in those situations, often it's a, hey, congratulations, that's fantastic. Let's have a chat and we'll, you know, we'll produce a blog post or a media release and put it up on our website because it's, it, it's probably not going to connect with people outside of the science community. Um, the other reason we sometimes don't do video is we might have that initial conversation and not everyone is comfortable or or suitable for speaking on camera or even on podcasts. So we can figure out quite quickly based on how they act on the phone or in that initial meeting on whether it's going to be a good idea because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable or embarrassed. Um, they're not getting paid by the university to, to be spokespeople on camera. They're being paid to make clinical breakthroughs. So that's something that we're really big on is not pressuring people into doing anything that they don't want to do. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if someone's doing something amazing that's going to have implications for patients all around the world, that's when we'll push a little bit harder and, and, and offer media training. Um, and that's something we do a couple of times a year as well with our researchers is give them the chance to, to practice their speaking skills on camera, to uh, go through a line of questioning with the journalists. So we'll do our own in-house media training and bring our camera crew along and, and play that back for them to see how they look on camera and, and give them some live commentary on, well, when you answered that question, you were looking away from the camera or you mumbled a little bit or, you know, don't feel pressured to get it all in, in the first take. They'll edit that out. It's okay to pause and, and take a moment. Man, I feel like the media training, we could almost do a whole segue and make that a, an entirely separate audio podcast episode. Yeah, definitely. And it's that's something we're keen to get more involved with and, and probably expand a little bit. And I've actually recently been talking to John, one of your previous podcast uh, guests about that. And he's looking at uh, rolling something out similar in uh, BYU. 
Justin, I'm curious about the timeline, right? And, and we've talked about how much lead time you have with these researchers, but I'm curious then on the back end. So, so you sit down with a researcher, you, you get your maybe 20 minutes, maybe an hour, best case, with, with a researcher. How long until kind of that first piece of content is ready to be published? And how long are you dripping out this content? Because you've got a lot of content at your disposal at this point. Yeah, definitely. It, it ranges. I mean, the headshot, we can obviously turn around quite quickly and we want to keep that connection of the researcher. We don't want them to think that we've, they've given up an hour of a time and, and we're not going to be in touch with them for another month. So that's something that will turn around really quickly. The headshot, um, the Instagram posts will post quite quickly, uh, particularly the Instagram story. A lot of the other content, so the social video, the long form video, uh, a potential podcast, a blog post slash media release, Often that's under embargo, so the timelines will be dictated to us based on when we're allowed to actually share that information. Um, so that's in the, the reactive environment where they've come to us and said, I've got, I'm being published in a couple of weeks, um, what can you do for me? So that's when the timeline is dictated to us. Um, when we're being more proactive, like I, I spoke about Research Week earlier, uh, that's when we can drip feed the content um, you know, for a good six or seven weeks leading up to it. For example, Research Week, if we did a long-form video and a blog that's published to coincide with that week, we might do a short social teaser uh, a couple of weeks out and then we might um, drip feed some content on Instagram, letting people know that there's this great video coming up. Um, so, yeah, it, it depends on whether it's proactive and reactive and whether we're able to set the deadlines or it's being dictated to us. You mentioned, you know, promoting and, and publishing this content. I'm curious about where that's coming from. So are, are you releasing everything from a branded account or, you know, when able, are you proactively reaching out to, you know, influencers, uh, media members, or, or even maybe the researchers themselves to share this content from their own individual handles? Yeah, good question. Uh, we do post most of it through our branded channel. So, um, and that can include multiple university accounts. So we're quite a decentralized organization uh, at the moment at the University of Queensland. Uh, so we will reach out to our colleagues in other parts of the university and say, give them the heads up and say, look, we've got this really cool content about cancer research or uh, genomics or whatever it might be. Would you like to share that? Do you want to schedule it in? We have started approaching some of our researchers to share the content through their own channels. So we had a planning day earlier this year and we were talking about the kind of rise and rise of influencer marketing. And I mean, we're a faculty of, we've got about 6,000 staff that in amongst that staff, there's world-class researchers with really big following. So why don't we identify, you know, the top 10 researchers that we want to start sharing our messages on our behalf. Um, and it's mainly on Twitter being the research community, I think is really where they have those conversations. And so far, we've had two or three uh, instances where we'll go out and prepare a short video for them uh, or write a blog post for them to share through their own channels, and that's unbranded. Um, and we've had some good success, and it's a really great relationship-building activity because those people who have built up followers, followings of you know, 15 or 20,000 people in their field, they, they get it. They haven't got to that point by sharing crappy content. So they really appreciate it. And it kind of builds that cycle again where they become the, the advocates and, and, and talk about the great service that the marketing team can provide. Hey everyone, a quick shout out to the agency that makes this show possible, eCity Interactive. You know, I really do love coming to work every day at eCity and that's not just because everyone shares my love of donuts. 
Uh, but that's really because I get to collaborate with a talented team working on everything from user experience to content and digital marketing to web design and development and a whole lot more. Our work has earned us an incredible roster of education clients, including the University of Pennsylvania, George Washington University, Petty School, Cornell, Drexel, Rutgers, and many others. So if you're looking to improve your web and digital presence and better communicate your school's story, visit us online at ecityinteractive.com and get in touch. So Justin, you just talked about success uh, when you were mentioning working with maybe more socially active uh, researchers. And I want to talk about the success of this because I think we can agree that the theory behind this idea, content repurposing, is solid. And the work that you're doing is really great, but there is, of course, extra effort in creating additional content. And as you mentioned, you don't have uh, the resources that, say, a National Rugby League uh, has. So Uh what results have you seen from this effort that has let you know that that this has been successful and is worth continuing? Yeah, it's a good question. And 100%, it, it has been more effort, um, but I do think it's worth, it's it pays off. And, and for me, I think the biggest KPI really is engagement on our content. Um, and we've seen some really pleasing data over the last year or so. So our social engagement has risen by about 20% since we've implemented this this new concept of the 10 pieces of content. And our blog traffic's seen a fourfold increase. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which is some, I mean, we were probably starting on a pretty low base, but uh, that's really pleasing. And I guess that's keeping the, the bosses happy that this investment we're putting into this content creation is paying off. But for me, the coolest feedback really has been coming from the researchers that have have shared stories or emails or phone calls that they've had with collaborators who, who want to work with them or patients who are reaching out saying, I want to be a part of your trial. Or, I mean, the ultimate for the researchers, which is, you know, we put them up on a pedestal and say, please tell everybody is when, is when funding bodies or philanthropists get in touch and say, Hey, we want to meet with you. What you're doing is really interesting. So to me, they're probably the results that mean the most because that is the ultimate KPI for the researchers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how far can you take this? Justin? you know, is there, you've got 10 pieces. We mentioned the uh, Australian sports marketer who's doing 20 how what is that dream scenario for you moving forward because i imagine at some point you're going to hit a point of diminishing returns on this concept yeah and i i think 10 is we're probably kind of at the peak before it starts you know hitting the the point of diminishing returns um you know i am really big on content creation and digital marketing but i think face to face still beats everything um, and there's been situations where we've been planning events and we've had people come to us who are, you know, who are great supporters of the work we do, but they'll say, why don't, I've got this great idea. Why don't we get the host of the event to produce a video to play at the event? And it's like, hmm, we could do that, but why don't we just get the host to speak to the audience? Who's actually <laughs> there? <laughs> so, um, I mean, it, we've got some really great support, but I don't think content creation in the digital environment is always the solution. Um, and we probably fell into the trap early on of, of, you know, step one, let's not do face-to-face events. Let's put it on Facebook. Let's put a, create a blog. Let's put it on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever that channel might be. Um, and I, I think that's when it starts getting a bit crazy. So, yeah, I, I think 10 is probably we're at that point of diminishing returns. And to, I guess to we never increased our resources to, to move into this content creation space. So what we uh, were able to do was, convince people to move away from 
uh, a major event. So, you know, you might have significant staffing resources that go into playing, planning an event on campus and they'll, they'll attract 50 people there. We'll say, let's channel those resources into a few content pieces and we'll connect with 5,000 people who are interested in that content. And that really hit the mark with some of our uh, senior leaders as far as, look, you've been doing this for 10 years and you've probably been doing it because it's always been done. But let's have a think about really what are you trying to achieve here? Is it communicating with partners and the community about what you're doing in you know topic X, or is it about getting everyone together for that face-to-face contact? Contact. And I mean, I don't think there is a, a silver bullet. There's no single answer for every KPI. So often it is those conversations. And while we love going out to film people and write blogs, some of those conversations are actually we don't think a video is right for the situation. Let's you know, let's set up a meeting with someone or, um, yeah, let's run an event or, or produce a flyer or whatever it might be. Justin, one of the, you know, one of the last questions that I, that I usually will ask a guest is about advice. And, and I want to make sure I ask it here too, because there are going to be listeners of this show who hear what you're doing and rush out to adopt something similar on their campus. It, it makes a lot of sense. And, and you've clearly had a ton of success with it. For those individuals, what advice would you give them now from someone who's been doing this for for a little while now? My biggest piece of advice would really be to start small. We literally started filming on iPhones um, and and a bit of trial and error and and in-house editing has got a lot better in our team since then. Uh, We then moved into a really cost-effective little camera called the DJI Osmo with an inbuilt gimbal, which gives that nice smooth footage. So that links up with your uh, smartphone uh, and you can, uh, it it doesn't look like a a really high value production when you're going out there and talking to the researchers, but it produces some really slick footage um, and then work your way up from there. I think we probably went seven or eight months using just the the little gimbal camera with an iPhone app and, and that did the trick. And to be honest, our most successful video over the last 12 months was from those early days. And the key to that success really was um, a really great student in front of the camera who had a great backstory, was really emotional about getting entry into one of our university programs. So that was the key. Um, And as far as starting small, is test your content. Produce one video at a time and see if it works. The stuff that doesn't work, cut that out of your planning. The things that do work, build your plans around that. Um, it, it kind of sounds very pragmatic and quite straightforward, but that's that's been our approach, trial and error. And I think you have to cut yourself a little bit of slack sometimes that if you produce a video that doesn't work, that's kind of part of the learning process and the testing process. Man, I love that. I love that advice. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it, it might take a while to, um, to to let the senior management cut you some slack as far as yes, trialing. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but, but, but that's the beauty of the the starting small and scaling up starting with the iPhone or the, or the little gimbal app that you can plug into your iPhone is it's, you're not investing a significant amount of money or resourcing really in that early stage. Well, Justin Lang, thank you so much for, for joining the hashtag higher ed podcast. Uh, A couple things, a little housekeeping matters before we let you go today. First of all, for, for listeners who want to, contact you maybe ask a question or or just follow you on social media where can our listeners find you online sure the usual places i'm 
I'm a bit of a Twitter stalker rather than a Twitter poster, but uh, I am on Twitter. So Jazzy Lang, J-U-Z-Z-Y-L-A-I-N-G is on Twitter. Uh, a bit more active on LinkedIn. And if anyone wants to connect, feel free to look me up on there. Um, I don't write blogs. I occasionally share um, share some columns on, on LinkedIn. But yeah, Twitter or LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. Excellent. And of course, each week on the show, we ask our guests to give a social shout out to a colleague or individual that deserves more recognition of their work. And just like we do uh, every show, Justin, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. I I probably couldn't signal one person out, to be honest. I would love to. Um, I met some fantastic hiring colleagues over in San Diego for the EDU web conference. I mean, yourself, Stephen, I learned a lot from your workshop. Chris and the team that run that conference, I think, are an outstanding group of people. And I'd really love to get back and and spend some time with those guys again. Um, And as far as a a big corporate, I guess, is the Content Marketing Institute out of Cleveland. I, I would read five to seven pieces of content from them each week. And that's where a lot of my new ideas really get generated from. So um, I would imagine a lot of your listeners are across them, but yeah, highly recommend Content Marketing Institute. Yeah. And and I don't know if you know, Justin, but EDU Web 2019 is in my home turf, Philadelphia. So I would love to have you come out one more time. (laughs) I would love to get there. And how about we make a deal that if I can get there, you have to come out to the University's Australia conference one day. Oh, yes. My bosses might have some objections to that, but I am I am personally in. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll manage up. We'll manage up. <laughs> well, hey, once again, Justin, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad we can make this work, and I'm so glad that our paths crossed uh, in San Diego this past summer. Really looking forward to, to staying up to date on what you've got going at the University of Queensland. And once again, thank you so much for joining the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me, mate.